0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to a launch event uh, by International Diabetes Federation, IDF Europe, supported by Lilly Diabetes with Euractiv as your media partner. Now, today we're going to be discussing type 2 diabetes, a preventable catastrophe. Now, first things first, as always, to everyone who is here and everyone who is joining us online, get involved, put in your comments and your questions into our Slido chat page. Now you should be seeing it on your screen now. There is also a QR code that you can scan to also send those questions and comments into us. And if you are going to be on your socials and tweeting about this um, hopefully amazing event, and where we will discuss a lot of important things, use the hashtag T2Diabetes. Okay, so I hope that's really clear and please do get involved. Okay, well, I think the, um, you know, the title of this launch event um, pretty much says everything about what we're going to be discussing today. Diabetes, for anyone who doesn't know, is a chronic condition where the body can't make or make enough insulin. Now, there are, of course, three types. You've got type one, type 2 and gestational diabetes. And today we're going to be discussing type 2 diabetes. Stats tell us that 61 million people live with type 2 diabetes, and that accounts for about 90 to 95% of the total number of people who are living with diabetes. Now, with things like early diagnosis, access to treatment, leading a healthy lifestyle, so that's your diet or your fitness, this is a chronic condition that can be managed well. But without it, an individual, their support structure, and the healthcare system itself can get overwhelmed. Now stats tell us that in 2021, 6.7 million people died um, with diabetes-related complications. 90% of those deaths were related to type 2 diabetes. So the question is actually quite obvious, is acting early the game changer? Now this might seem a very obvious question, but if it was, why are the stats so high? Well, that's something that we're going to be asking the experts. But before I introduce you to all of these lovely panellists, first, um, I welcome to the floor Nebojša Lalic, who's IDF Europe's regional chair. Please go ahead, sir. Round of applause, perhaps.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, welcome. I'm a little bit now split between the panellists and uh, and the audience and uh, the people uh, joining remotely but anyway welcome all of you thank you very much for the panelists uh, and uh, uh, thank you uh, thanks to all of you for interest uh, if I just uh, can take what I my duty of course is just to remind you On what is International Diabetes Federation Europe? It is a a European chapter. Uh, of the International Diabetes Federation that encounters, uh, believe it or not, 73 national diabetes uh, uh, organizations in 46 countries in Europe, uh, and trying to uh, put together and uh, uh, change the course of diabetes, uh, of people living with diabetes, and with the help of healthcare professionals. We have our vision and the vision is to improve the lives of people with diabetes and those at risk. We have our mission. we would like to be the voice of the people living with diabetes, but not uh, in order to place the complaints, but uh, also to uh, arrange and engage uh, with all stakeholders in creating a person-centered diabetes ecosystem. And we are not selfish. So uh, that uh, uh, should be within an informed and health-promoting environment. So we have our priority objectives to reduce diabetes prevalence, to improve uh, people with diabetes access to care, health outcomes and quality of life, and increase the voice of people with diabetes. So in that case, uh, we embarked into uh, this, uh, uh, what you are going to hear today, and uh, because you consider uh, diabetes as a whole and you see this graph from uh, 2011 to 2030 how the number of people in diabetes would increase despite all our miracles of technology and the rest and uh, uh, this is of course a projection Uh, this doesn't have to happen and I hope it's not going to happen that way and uh, uh, but anyway uh, type 2 Diabetes uh, within it, uh, and that is what we are speaking about, is a katast- catastrophe. Uh, uh, because, uh, as you heard, more than half of mm, uh, people with type 2 diabetes, and the uh, people with type 2 diabetes uh, make 90% of diabetes uh, of pe- the whole of diabetes. So, uh, mm, uh, more than half of those will die prematurely. Uh, and this is one aspect which is uh, uh, very much worrisome and uh, there is another one and uh, uh, in 2021 the costs of treatment related to diabetes was about 176 billion another uh, about 75 of which is related to healthcare costs to treat otherwise preventable complications not to mention that type of diabetes itself is preventable, if not uh, completely preventable, that, then it is possible to delay it. That's why we embarked uh, into this uh, uh, policy paper, uh, which is entitled Type 2 Diabetes A Preventable Catastrophe, as an urgent call for action to redesign our healthcare system uh, and uh, uh, um, across Europe, and to remove the barriers that are preventing the effective management of type 2 diabetes, which means uh, more than everything else, the prevention. So I will then give floor to the panelists.
0: Okay, but uh, before you go, I do have a quick question um, on what you just spoke about there. So you were saying that the number of people obviously with diabetes is only going to increase. Now, you've got this call to action, which is what... It's your paper that basically says this is the perfect scenario. These are all the conditions that need to be met in order to um, improve the scenario for people living with diabetes. But, you know, in this ideal scenario, um, this perhaps can't... The ideal scenario can't perhaps can't happen. So what is perhaps the one major factor that needs to change in order to change the circumstances for people living with diabetes and then to bring those those numbers down?
1: It's... If I should say just one thing, that thing would be very, I mean, uh, uh, like an umbrella of all others. And that is a rearrangement of the healthcare system, which would, in a structured way, put in place uh, the prevention of uh, type 2 diabetes. And uh, prevention of its complications, because this this is nowadays the part of type two diabetes management, but not the uh, the, the 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 part that uh, is focused uh, by almost any uh, uh, with some exa- with some ex- exceptions, but almost any healthcare system in Europe. We would like to make it now on the uh, on the uh, put it on the stage and uh, being the first uh, the first of our. Uh, intentions, and then uh, everything else would be uh, just related to that.
0: Okay, well, let's let's hope that that does happen then. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you. Thank you. Please go take your seat then. Lovely. Thank you. Okay, so time to introduce um, all of the panellists. Um, next to me, we have Eric West, and He is someone who is living with type 2 diabetes, and he's going to tell us a little bit in detail, a little bit later, um, about his journey. We also have MEP front, Bogovic and from the MEP interest group on diabetes, MEPs mobilizing for diabetes. Um, I understand that you also, did have a diagnosis of type two diabetes, but um, I've been told that you've been able to reverse this chronic condition. Again, something that we will discuss later. We also have Professor Karmlish Kunti, who is a professor of primary care diabetes and vascular medicine at the University of Leicester and Leicester General Hospital, of course, in the UK. It's another Brit on the panel, woo uh, <laughs> We also have Pref- Professor Tade Battalino from the head of the Department of Pediatric and Adolescent endocrinology at the University Medical Center in Ljubljana, in in Slovenia? Ljubljana, Ljubljana, sorry. (laughs) And finally, we have Maurizio Gidi, who's the chair of the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Association Diabetes Platform. Okay, so welcome to all of you. I apologize for... um, mispronouncing um, the Slovenian Medical Center's name. Um, first of all, let me start, I'll let you all introduce yourselves to everyone here um, in the room and also our audience online. Um, and first of all, I'll start with Eric.
2: Thank you. Erik uh, Wersom, living with type 2 diabetes for 25 years. 25 years ago, I went to my physician uh, because I had some itching stains in my face. And he said, well, uh, let's check your sugar levels. And the conclusion was, you have type 2 diabetes. So in about five minutes, he explained me what diabetes was and sent me home with oral medication. And I started the three worst years of my life because that medication really made me sick. And after three years building up the medication, uh, he said, well, I have not so good news for you. You need to switch to insulin. Wow, that was a relief for me. So I was sent home with Insulin, uh, had to find out how to inject myself, and no support at all. And then a period started with guidance from practice nurses and physicians, in which they tried to use a protocol to uh, get control of my life. And what I missed was, uh, looking at who I was, and trying to uh, let me fit my diabetes into my life. So it was very difficult to me because I followed as much the protocol as I could. But successes weren't celebrated and finally I said I'm quitting. I'm just doing it myself. And in those days we only had the finger pricks. So it was a little bit difficult to get a good uh, view on what what was happening in my body. Uh, And that changed when I was able to use sensors. And then I could see, I am currently at this value, but I'm moving that way, that direction, and I need to do something or I don't need to do anything. And that really helped me. The individual approach was something I really missed and I had to change a lot of things in my life, but in a way they fitted my life and I could integrate the diabetes into my life. And fortunately at this time, I'm managing my diabetes the way I would like to manage it, Uh, I'm in control. And of course, sometimes it goes wrong, and sometimes it it goes better. It's uh, just a uh, fact of life living with type two diabetes.
0: Okay, thank you very much for sharing that, and we'll get um, more details from you about your um, you know health situation. Um, next, over to MEP Bogovic. Yeah, good afternoon, everybody.
3: <coughs> As uh, you said, I'm from Slovenia, and. Uh, uh, i uh, first time I heard about diabetes two from one old lady in my neighborhood when I was a child, and she lived with uh, dia- diabetes i don 't know sixty seventy years and I followed her because she spoke a lot about this uh, disease uh, later uh, it was closer to me it was in my family, my mother. Uh, 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 had diagnosed for for diabetes 2 type uh, when she was little less than 50. She <coughs> she lived with uh, this disease. I don't know 35 years. Last year she died in 85. Eight, so she lived with this, and uh, I followed this. Then my brother at the age four, 50 also uh, got diagnosed, and I was careful about this because I heard that uh, you must take care about this and uh, last year i was I checked my level of sugar uh, many years and uh, last year in autumn, when I visit a doctor in the European Parliament at uh, check control of health, he recognized that this is a little bit over the level it was six point six in period of six weeks I think is measuring and uh, he suggested me to start to take medicines and uh, i listened to him and uh, also we spoke more about this uh, this uh, disease and uh, what he, uh, was that normal uh, what he recommended to me to lose some weight uh, i I listened to him, uh, I decided, uh, what is not easy in Belgium, uh, no beer, uh, and also, uh, also, no, n- <laughs> no uh, sorry, <laughs> no sweets, it's okay, it's okay, uh, less wine for Slovenian, not no wine, less wine, <laughs> and uh, and uh, more activities. Uh, yes, I lost uh, close to 10 kilos, and uh, my additional plan is another 5 kilo in half a year, and half a year it was 10 plan, and another, another half half. Uh, another five, and uh, when I made a control, uh, I think now two months ago, the level of sugar was normal, but uh, I used this metformin uh, twice a day, five, metformin 500 milligrams uh, five a day. So, I, as I said, also in the European Parliament we had last year, that a uh, few weeks after my diagnosis we had a uh, debate and we accept this uh, resolution and uh, it was, it's clear and I think it uh, goes in the right uh, direction. And if I may say, I think that in, uh, if I observe the system, uh, Dr. Botolino know much better about the Slovenian system and also European health systems, during the COVID crisis, we forgot a little bit on other cri- uh, illness, uh, diseases and uh, I think that after COVID crisis, we have in our country more and more problem in health system with lack of people uh, and also lack of money. So I think that it's very important that uh, we speak about such a disease like uh, diabetes, uh, which is possible to prevent or to uh, slow down the speed of illness, so uh, that's my pleasure that I'm invited here and I have a possibility to to speak
4: about this.
0: Definitely. Um, Okay, Professor Kamlish.
4: Hello everyone, Um, uh, Kamlish Kunti, I'm a general practitioner and I work in the area of research in diabetes. Um, today we're talking about a catastrophe, there are a couple of catastrophes, what, uh, one is that we can prevent this tsunami of diabetes that's occurring by prevention measures, uh, um, but today we're talking about people who have type 2 diabetes and the catastrophe facing them. Um, we have excellent evidence base and Great trials showing that we can prevent diabetes, but once people get diabetes, we can manage it so that people with diabetes do not get the complications. And the complications, as you all know, are things such as eye disease, kidney disease, feet disease, and heart disease and strokes. All of these are preventable, and we know that about 50% or more of people with diabetes will die of those complications. Uh, often it's cardiovascular complications. But we have such good evidence that we don't need to get to that level. And this is doing simple things, simple things as in managing blood pressure, managing glucose, managing uh, people's uh, cholesterol levels, uh, empowering people so that they can manage their condition well. You have heard a really nice example here just now trying to uh, reduce uh, uh, obesity levels, stopping people smoking or helping them stop smoking. These are really simple things, and we don't need to use expensive drugs to do many of these things. And all of these together, we can reduce the risk of complications dramatically. So if you look at some of the data out there, people with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, lose anything from 6 to 8 years of their life compared to someone who doesn't have diabetes because of these complications. And there is good data out there showing that if we do all these things well, people can gain six to eight years of life. So we really do not need to be at this meeting today if we did all of that correctly.
0: Okay, well said. Um, Professor Tette, over to you next.
4: Yeah, thank you very much. Also a pleasure to be here
5: with you. What I would perhaps like to stress is that all current guidelines introduce disease-modifying medications at a quite late stage. So if you have, you know, cardiac involvement, okay, then this drug is good for you. If you have kidney trouble, then, you know, the other is also available to you. But what perhaps should be the focus is that people never get there. And there is also ample evidence that you can, by using disease-modifying medications, prevent all these conditions. So. My, my view is that we have to change professional guidelines in a way to identify very early those at risk and of course by early introduction of disease-modifying medications change the course of complications. So number one is early identification and I really like our, our co-panelists today mentioned CGM, so continuous glucose monitoring. This is a tool that really shows what happens with glucose over a larger period of time and also, of course, predict possible complications. And the second, then, that as soon as these people with an elevated risk are identified, immediately the disease-modifying medications are available and also accessible to them. So the barriers of different kinds that were mentioned previously are, particularly in our European landscape removed. So this is perhaps uh, the focus I would, like to, I would like to propose to you. So very early and precise identification with perhaps continuous glucose monitoring and then immediate action upon it in those with an identified elevated risk.
0: Okay, thank you so much. And then lastly to Maurizio.
6: Um Let me start uh, highlighting uh, one uh, one thing that to me is, uh, and to us should be dramatic, that in the few minutes that I'm speaking, six Europeans will die for diabetes and its complication. And um, I would like to highlight, that should be very personal, because in these six, there is my father-in-law, Piero, there is someone a else, sister, a parent, And what is dramatic is that, uh, uh, as highlighted by expert, science is telling us how to prevent this death. It's not only death, it's about also uh, uh, quality of life. Diabetes is the second highest cause for loss of quality of life. It has been estimated that 2.6 years of productive life is going to be lost for people with diabetes versus, non, versus people without diabetes. So uh, it's a very, very important point that uh, healthcare system should uh, manage and should manage different. Because as highlighted by Professor Lalic, there is 176 billion euros for uh, uh, diabetes and uh, up to 75 are also preventable costs. So science is telling us that uh, we can save lives and also save, uh, save money. As, um, just uh, if you can uh, give me one uh, uh, more minutes, I would like to highlight that uh, uh, building and bridging uh, to Professor Battellino, that as a FPI diabetes platform, uh, we have uh, uh, working on two surveys that I would like briefly to share. One is uh, called, uh, weight indicators and we look at the 17th molecules that has been available from twenty fourteen to twenty twenty. Uh, no state has all the 17 molecules available with the variances from three months of delay to four years of delay. So obviously the equipment to have care professional has been dramatically reduced by having a limited access to this uh, uh, new molecule and the other survey is uh, uh, something that we have developed uh, in collaboration with price cooper so we look how easy for a care professional well educated well motivated as well as a very well motivated uh, person with diabetes to follow the guidelines and again the uh, basic result was that it's almost impossible because there are barrier, policy barrier, at country level that are essentially uh, doesn't enable to, to follow the, the latest science indication. And that's something that probably we should consider to be,
0: to be addressed. Okay, well let, let me ask you a follow-up question to what you're talking about there. If this is the second highest cause of loss of life What's got us to this point, that it is the second highest cause of loss of life? Is it just a case of something that has spiraled out of control? If you're saying the science is there, the data is there, you've got partners working on concept papers together looking at this disease, why is, does it cause so much death and why hasn't this been addressed?
6: Uh, we believe that uh, our care system are more equipped to manage acute care rather than chronic condition. And, uh, and uh, uh, that's one of the of the issue of, uh, of this. Uh, but uh, as has been highlighted by expert, uh, uh, there is a few steps that we need to make in order to make a sustainable change. Early diagnosis is one. Early intensification of treatment is another one. And then there are as highlighted by the European Diabetes Forum, three key enablers at the healthcare system, like uh, data registry and outcome, uh, like uh, the better integration of uh, primary and secondary care, as well as digitalization, that can really dramatically change if uh, uh, the overall uh, mindset uh, change is established. But definitely, we consider a cost, an inevitable cost, uh, healthcare-wise, also an investment, as well as also for uh, some treatment and, and the pharmaceutical, it uh, should be considered rather than a cost, an investment for preventing the complication they are driving so much, the skyrocketing cost uh, of uh, the total care.
0: Okay, so Professor Carmichele, to follow up on that, then, um, what do you think the crux of the problem is? Is it a case that you know the healthcare system can't deal with chronic conditions?
4: I think that there's a number of barriers. One is it's, it's it, it, the person with diabetes level, healthcare professional level and system levels. Uh, system level is access to the products that we have sometimes. Um, that's a big barrier in many other countries. Healthcare professional levels, they have too many conditions to manage. So a person with diabetes doesn't normally have diabetes as we've said, they have other conditions. So someone aged less than 65 they will have diabetes and two other conditions. Aged over 65, they will die with diabetes and five other conditions. There's a lot to deal with there for that person. And diabetes can be quite silent. High blood pressure, high glucose, high cholesterol doesn't give you symptoms. A person with diabetes may have depression. They may have um, lung disease, which is giving them symptoms. They want to deal with the symptomatic diseases first. So they may not pay as much attention. But that can be reversed by giving proper education programs for people with diabetes and empowering people with diabetes to manage and and, uh, informing about the risks. And then the big problem with healthcare professionals, again, the system at the moment, as you mentioned, after COVID is very difficult. We're having great difficulty recruiting people, retaining people. There's still a a lot of people not working because of effects of COVID, either direct or indirect system there's been a backlog so we're trying to bring everyone through you know, two and two years of backlog um even before the the pandemic we had issues about management because but also there was
0: years of austerity so exactly. you know so many countries were cutting their you yeah. know their budgets their, their their staff everything
4: we just don't have the workforce they said so there are the things we need to do are simple getting blood pressure managed getting Cholesterol managed, getting blood sugars managed, but the system isn't geared to give that much time to the healthcare professionals mm. to manage
0: those. But has but Eric has a system ever been geared then? Because you're someone who, you know, was was unfortunately. Uh, got this disease over 25 years ago. So, I mean, from your experience, your experience hasn't been a good one. We've just heard, you know, a few sort of excerpts from your story. You talked about bad treatment, no support, you went alone. So, you know, we can blame things like austerity. We can blame things like pandemic. We can look at the situation now of of the healthcare system, you know, across member states, but 25 years ago, was it worse?
2: It was worse. If I look back 25 years, then a a GP, he knew a little bit about diabetes. And then the practice nurses started and they got educated. But in the beginning, you had many different types of practice nurses with different levels of education. And I think that has been improving over the past years. And at that time, I had to educate my practice nurse instead of the other way around. Because I found out more information than that he was aware of. And the other thing was that in those times, uh, they were not aware of the personal impact or your personal life. I was treated as a patient and not as a person. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, I think um, practice nurse should be more like a social worker, looking at who you are, how your life is, and what can you do in your life to, uh, to, yeah, to incorporate your condition into that life. So I have seen it improving. And the other thing is, what you said, you don't feel anything if you get diabetes. There are almost no symptoms. And in my environment, I see that many uh, people with type 2 diabetes, they think, well, I have type 2 diabetes, but I don't feel anything, so why bother? And we don't have a network, because if you have type 2 diabetes, you are alone, you are uh, focused on yourself, you're not aware of other people in most cases, and that could also improve
0: Why are you awareness. alone though? Because I think for the audience as well it be important to understand you, that. You
2: only see your GP or your practice nurse and you don't meet anyone else with type 2 diabetes unless you go and find groups, focus groups, and people that also have type 2 diabetes. But you just live your life. Why bothering about diabetes? You don't feel anything. Uh, many people do it that way and they don't get the right treatment and the right support. They are not educated well enough to be able to manage their condition.
0: So in an ideal scenario then, I mean, well, perhaps not an ideal scenario, but what do you wish could have been done better for you? And what is being done better now that you, you can see perhaps?
2: Uh, first of all, holistic approach, not only looking from a treatment based on a protocol, Uh, more awareness about who you are, that's part of the holistic approach, and maybe uh, creating uh, focus groups with people that already have type 2 diabetes and that know how to deal with it and learn from each other. Because everyone is different. I once was in a group with people uh, with type 1 and type 2 diabetes and I thought, well, the type 1 can't learn from me. And I shared experiences and they said, wow, I can what you do try in my life, and you learn from each other, and find, find, you find out what works for you. Okay, and that could really help.
0: I mean, your, your I mean, your sort of journey in this has been perhaps a little bit easier because you said your mother and your brother also got this disease. Did did that perhaps help you in a way or to, to understand this better?
3: Yes, for sure. This helped me, and uh, that's the reason why I followed uh, my level of sugar also before, when it was close under the level, and then I recognized. But I want to add uh, what uh, the Dutch colleague said and compare these practices in my country, in Slovenia. I was 13 years mayor in my country, and I had many Events and many meetings with people who represent uh, diabetes two type uh, uh, patient uh, they are organized in the clubs uh, they they have meetings uh, uh, as mayors we supported uh, their meetings and uh, the work of these clubs so I can say for my country and this is not only uh, when I was mayor i as I said I was a child when this uh, neighbor lady explained me uh, and I know that she, it was 20-30 years ago, she, she, they were organized. So it's little surprise for me that uh, in the Netherlands uh, you don't have uh, such a time. Perhaps Professor Bottolino can say more about this, he is close to, to them also. So I can say that uh, for me it was uh, uh, easier, as I said, uh, and I explained that we have this disease in families, so I take care about this. and. Uh, Follow this also. I follow all the time my blood, blood pressure and other things which are connected with this. And uh, this uh, public awareness about diabetes in Slovenia, as I think, uh, is uh, much, much better than I, I heard, uh, heard before. So I think this is very important that we, we know more about this, this and uh, these simple things which help us to, to prevent uh, the consequences of diseases.
0: So, So, Professor Tade, I mean, perhaps you can um, add in there about this public awareness in your country. I mean, what sort of, what is done to make people more aware?
5: Number one, at first I agree, it's crucial. So I agree many people are alone with this disease and shouldn't be. So uh, are we better in Slovenia, it's hard to say, you know, everybody wants to believe so, but then, you know, uh, I know many people that are alone with type 2 diabetes in Slovenia as well, despite the best effort. So what was emphasized uh, by you, actually, I think is extremely important. So connect with other people and discuss what's happening is of major help. What I also heard from the 25-year-old story is, and I think this is crucial for today, that it used to be a drug that that make our our colleagues sick, and then it was insulin. And this has changed enormously. This is probably the biggest change in addition to technology that we saw in the field of diabetes, which is that innovative medicines actually are disease-modifying, so they are perhaps less offensive, particularly if you want the risk of hypoglycemia, which is a barrier to every therapy in diabetes, is now, with the novel medicines, negligible, so to say. So. One of the reasons why this seemed to be neglected is that we didn't have an armory to deal with it properly, and this is extremely frustrating for physicians. We understood that telling people eat less and move more doesn't work, right? And the tools for sparse. This is now different, and we have to acknowledge it, understand it, and incorporate it in our healthcare system. It should be on the primary care level, as, as, as Professor Kunti, mentioned. It should be within the social networks in the country, but it also should be accessible to people. So not just, you know, on the internet and then you read it's for the rich in California. It should be accessible to people with early diabetes in Europe. And this will change the outcome, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, if, if you look at the cardiology, which is largely overfunded, with all the, you know, rescue therapies, instead of, you know, diverting this money into prevention and, you know, have people at 70 that do not have all these terrible chronic complications, is an investment and is, finally, money saving. So a public system like we have in our member states probably should acknowledge this and really change the way we deliver care and invest in preventing early on these complications rather than, you know, having sophisticated facilities to manage them when it's too late. And part of the blame is also with us, with with healthcare professionals, because we are a bit hard to change. This is my experience, lifelong experience. I'm not sure what Kamlisch will say about it, but we are a little bit conservative, which is good for very sick people in many ways. But then on the other hand, perhaps we need to change a bit also and you know, change our guidelines and say, look, I mean, detect and treat. This is now the mantra and prevent with this. And the last thing is the quality of life. This was also seen you know, in this 25-year-old story. So it didn't work. So the quality of life, I believe, matters most. We didn't speak about dementia. Unfortunately, type 2 diabetes is highly linked to dementia. Some people say, okay, I don't care if I die earlier. Okay, but most people care not to be demented by the end of their life. So it's another super yeah, no important... no one wants to
0: die a horrible right? breath, essentially, yeah.
5: You know, so I think it's a super important angle to say to people, okay, so it doesn't hurt, okay, you don't feel it, fine. But it is related to outcomes you really don't want to have. So, you know, which is an additional, perhaps, social motivation to, to really, you know, accept, be concordant with the early... Intervention, early diagnosis, and early disease-modifying therapies that that basically can reverse the course of the disease.
0: Professor Kamlesh,
4: yes, I think we need to have a complete rethink of how we manage people with diabetes. The the, the most cost-effective delivery of healthcare is in primary care, in, in general practices, uh, and there's been uh, quite a lot of evidence for that. Specialists, we need them when patients have quite severe complications, specialist complications that primary care cannot manage. Primary care also knows everything about that person, not just about their diabetes or heart disease, they know about their social circumstances, they know about their their, uh, mental health conditions, past history, etc. So the course should be management at primary care at the moment we have 10 minutes appointments you can't manage this uh, in if, that, if that
0: if that and the UK is quite terrible right exactly. now.
4: well no it's it's like that everywhere everywhere
0: yeah yes, yeah not for sure yeah so I think
4: we need to have a rethink and 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 we've talked about the progress that's been made in medications over the last 25 years it's it's tremendous it's enormous I mean it's life-changing but you can't have a general practitioner being good at everything your lung disease, your heart disease, your depression, you can, just can't do that. So what we need to think about is having specialists within a primary care setting. And we don't have enough doctors.
0: Is it about going back to how we teach, you know, Yeah, it's, it's, it's from,
4: from the start yeah. onwards, but the model of care completely needs to change. And we don't need doctors. We Obviously, there is a shortage of doctors. We're not going to get that many doctors. But in the UK, there are other examples, Netherlands. You can have a well-trained nurses, well-trained pharmacists who can give time to that person with diabetes, who have the knowledge, the skill, they've been empowered to manage at such a high level. And it doesn't have to be diabetes, we need to also start thinking about multimorbidity. A person, A person with diabetes will have, as I said, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease. So you could be, have a holistic approach of managing a person who has that expertise, uh, of a number of conditions, not just one condition,
0: but where would you start then because if because obviously, um, I think every citizen they expect a lot from their gP we do expect them to have knowledge and everything. We go in for the ten minutes you know, we sort of verbal diarrhea everything that is wrong with us. Um, And we expect them to have these magical unicorn solutions from us. But perhaps, I mean, how then do you change the system? Instead of us going to the GP, do we go to the practice nurse? Do we just, is is there an avenue for us to go straight to the pharmacist? I mean, how do you change the whole system, essentially?
4: When I say pharmacist, I don't mean pharmacists in the high street pharmacists. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about pharmacists that are now embedded within Primary care mm. and GP practices. So we we're employing a lot more pharmacists now, because there's a shortage of doctors, and they are. R- Extremely empowered, they go and do a Diploma in Diabetes, Diploma in Cardiovascular Disease, Masters in Diabetes and Cardiovascular Disease, and they can manage the complex patients. They also have the prescribing rights, so they can prescribe. The nurses and our pharmacists can prescribe as as long as they've gone through the programme of safe prescribing. So I I think we just need to think very, very differently. Um, Now that we're coming out of the pandemic, that's the only way, in my opinion, that we're going to be able to cope.
0: Okay, um, and Professor Maurizio, your thoughts then? I mean, how could things be done differently? You've heard from Professor Carmich and his ideas, so what about you, what would you say, how could it be done differently?
6: Starting from um, realizing that the current setup of the care system will not bring better result if we don't change. As uh, highlighted by Professor uh, Kunti, uh, Definitely, we need to make some adjustment and uh, integration of primary care and secondary care is one uh, key component. But also, uh, I would highlight the need of moving from a reactive medicine to a more proactive medicine. Uh, non-communicable diseases are impacting uh, of the total budget of uh, European healthcare expenditure, 90% of the death, and and diabetes is a key example of non-communicable disease where a lot of cost but also a lot of uh, death are associated to complications as been highlighted by experts. And that's why we need to move from just managing the acute phase to a more person-centred system where the complications are uh, managed early on. and These are also great examples from M.P. Bogovic of uh, early identification, early treatment with dramatic uh, change of of outcome. On the other side, Eric uh, was highlighting uh, uh, an approach that has been established that is called treatment to fail you fail one, then you upgrade the therapy. You fail the second time, then you fail another time, and then you upgrade again the approach. But unfortunately, once complications are developed, are developed, we cannot reverse that. That's why what has been highlighted by experts is that uh, uh, we need the science is telling us that we need to make some uh, some changes, and uh, and we. With these changes, I'm really optimistic that, uh, that uh, also the healthcare system can be sustainable. That's, uh...
0: Okay, well let me then come to the two people that of course um, you know, have this chronic condition. Eric, come to you first. You hear what the other panellists are saying. I mean, what, what sort of changes would you like to see brought into the system?
2: Well, some changes that I already see happening, like you already said. Practice nurses get uh, trained far better than they used to be in the beginning. They get more experience in how to deal with uh, the, the treatment for uh, someone having type 2 diabetes. And they also have more time. It's not 10 minutes. They have 30 minutes. and You can discuss things with them and look at the best way to do that. And the other thing that really helped me and that I would also like to have everyone have is the CGM. Because I used to do the finger pricks 8 times a day, 10 times a day until I got sore fingers. But it still didn't help me enough because I couldn't see what happening, what was happening in my body. And with the CGM, I can just see what is happening and manage my diabetes. And at first I had to uh, pay it for myself because it wasn't reimbursed because I didn't have any complications yet. And fortunately that changed in the Netherlands and now I can use them. Uh, and it, it's for me, it, it gives a lot of rest and a better quality of life. So I think those two things, practice nurses with the proper knowledge and skills and being able to manage your own uh, blood glucose, that helps.
0: Okay, Um, so here again, we're hearing this kind of, you know, perfect scenarios, different approaches in different countries. So MP Bogovic then, obviously as a representative um, of the European Parliament, is there something that can be done on a policy level
3: yeah, for sure. Uh, first, uh, what is uh, dramatically is that uh, costs of this disease is higher than annual European budget, European budget, European Union budget. So, if we compare these figures, we spe- see that we speak about big costs. Uh, <coughs> we all know that uh, in health system during the COVID crisis, there are new measures which are related with European Union. Otherwise, uh, European Union... Uh, is not responsible or don't uh, there are not regulatory for health health system uh, on the uh, national level so if uh, we exchange these good practices this is for sure uh, something what we can what we can do uh, i don't know we know speak a lot about uh, also about uh, digitalization about e health about artificial intelligence, and i don't know i spoke I work in the Agri-Regi Committee, and my topics are smart villages, and I saw some solutions from Vodafone, for example, for Greece Islands, how doctors come and make these fast tests on different diseases, be connected with uh, the uh, clinic, and perhaps also for such a diagnosis, which are, as you said, uh, quite easy, and uh, it's not necessary that they are made by doctors, Perhaps we come closer to the people and to offer and offer them access for first for this this diagnosis, because as you said, you don 't know that you are ill but but uh, the process is going on so if i <coughs> and these suggestions are in this resolution of uh, of uh, European Parliament uh, that eighty uh, percent of people should have this fast access and uh, treatment and other things, and also this Uh, things connected with uh, style of life, other things. All these things are uh, mentioned in this resolution. I don't know if that's enough, uh, but... uh, for sure, that's the first step. And uh, what is interesting, such a resolution is not a resolution where we we are dividing uh, divided on left and right.
0: And uh, this is so it's, people, it's, 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 yeah no. It's, all it's, people speak. It's always tricky for MEPs to really try to move the needle because, as you said, health isn't per se an EU competence. You know, they have you could say an opinion on it, but it's for the member states. So that in itself, I mean. Does it sometimes get frustrating then, as someone who's also suffered from this chronic condition, to not be able to really affect real positive change within the Member States?
3: I'm not sure that <coughs> on everything we can decide here in Parliament or in European yeah. Parliament. Uh, of there, course. There, is the, <laughs> there are things which are necessary to be close to the people and, uh, as I understand, especially if we speak, I don't know bo- about uh, cancer, Or also about vaccines against uh, COVID. Uh, It was, I think, good that we put money together for research and other things, and also for, I don't know, different types of cancer. There is also uh, in this uh, we go in this direction to make research. But as we said, uh, heard here, here are many things are known. We we don't. Uh, speak about things which are not known and these things which which we know I think that through exchange of these good practices if we compare different countries perhaps we can we can uh, help that uh, the good practices we will share in all 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 countries and uh, this uh, this uh, um, different cases and this is in this resolution that uh, take care about this and also uh, give uh, to the people access to early diagnosis and early treatment. These are, I think, the most important
4: things about diabetes.
0: Okay, Professor Helmich, you've been nodding quite a lot there. Would you like to add something in there? No, no I think what you've
4: uh, mentioned is absolutely correct. It's that We know everything. There is enough evidence here. Yeah. We just need to put this into practice. And, and uh, we've talked about some of the models of care. One of the things that I think, Eric, uh, because you're a person with diabetes, you may not mention is I think we really need to empower the people with diabetes as well. Because we How do you do that? Well, there's uh, evidence-based uh, education programs out there. Uh, we, for example, we've developed one Desmond. There's many others as well. Um, we are quick at writing a prescription of an expensive drug to a person with diabetes, but we don't give as much emphasis about an education program. If we put the same amount of emphasis to the person with diabetes, say this education program is going to help you equally if not more than that medication, they're more likely to take it up. And by education program I don't mean sitting in a clinic in my 10 minute or 15 minute or half an hour appointment, we're talking about six hours of yearly education programs that people can access either a face-to-face group education or um, through uh, Online learning channels.
0: or something? Sorry? Online learning. Online learning, yeah. learning,
4: yes. So there are evidence-based, cost-effective, and they've been evaluated in randomised control trials to show they are cost-effective. And they are a fraction of a cost to a monthly prescription of one of the newer therapies.
0: So is that happening now in the UK? or?
4: It's, yes, it's available to everyone uh, in the UK Um but a lot of people with diabetes are not taking them up because I think the emphasis hasn't been given to say this is as if not more important than the medication, and that's why if you think about it, you know a lot of people take the medications, but l- after six months a year, uh, we call it non-adherence; they stop or don't take it as they're supposed to be ta- taken on a regular basis.
0: Hold on. Why would somebody stop taking the medication? Is, is it because it's it's working? At well,
4: either the, the, there's all sorts of reasons, you know. People with diabetes have said they have busy lives, they have lots of other conditions and uh, it just doesn't happen. So for example statins, uh, at six months 50% of people taking statins which save lives through heart disease. But I think one of the reasons is because they don't have the education regarding the importance of continuing that or their HB1C goes down, they um, they think their blood glucose is better now so they don't need to take the tablets but we know as soon as you stop the tablets the mm-hmm. glucose will start going up similar to the blood pressure but, but it's quite complex why people stop taking tablets but if you have the education programs you can increase adherence to medications.
0: Okay, Professor, I can see nothing you want to add in as well.
5: Well perhaps I would like first to say that I do believe artificial intelligence may help and uh, particularly if we unify primary care uh, electronic medical records at least in a in an environment but hopefully across europe so a uh, unified primary care electronic medical record is a must and i think will enormously facilitate whatever people needs are and artificial intelligence as as we now all know actually can help discuss things very efficiently so it's a tool that I do agree and actually very much support what you said, could help us, and particular, particularly UDF, inside the field of diabetes, is going this path and emphasizing uh, the use of, of you know intelligent, artificial intelligence approaches and clinical decision support systems, not only for healthcare professionals, but also for people with diabetes. And the second thing is that we are happy to import ERIC to Slovenia. So, uh, the thing is that people with diabetes can help each other uh, quite efficiently, perhaps better than any other healthcare professional. So, it is true. In our country, we do have this support. It's called peer support. And people with diabetes volunteer, actually, to help others. And this is particularly important for what we say concordance with therapy because when you know you when you hear it from a healthcare professional you know we say whatever right so they may or may not listen when they hear it from a peer that experienced the same trouble for many years they are perhaps more likely to take it seriously so the peer support that was mentioned uh, by Eric we believe is crucially important and we really try to build on it Considerably inside the society. Uh, Do we need cross border, you know, inside uh, member states collaboration? I think we do. And IDF has now a camp, actually. It's it's, it's, it's a type one camp at the moment, but should become a type two camp also. Because this is where this, you know, cross border exchanges of practices and, and, uh, you know, ideas, beliefs, or lifestyles even can happen. So I do believe that this, uh, the importance of peer-to-peer support communication that should be, you know, of course, within regions, but also the trans-regional is of crucial importance. And, uh, you know, in the end, if I hear that somebody in in Spain or, or Netherlands has the same trouble and does it this way, it works, it's a good news, right? So I perhaps can take it more easily and be more successful.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Well, we've talked about a lot about technology. Let's come to the cost of it all then. Um, 176 billion euros in 2021. Um, how? I mean, obviously, that's a massive cost. and We've spoken about this, but in order to reverse the trends that we're seeing, you know, the mortality rates, etc., um, where do you find that extra investment from? And perhaps MP Bogovic, has a question for you. Where does the extra funding come from for this then? where we can get extra funding. Yeah, where can member states find it from where can the funding come from um, where can they find the extra money within perhaps um, the healthcare system itself
3: but uh, reforms doesn't always mean find new money and uh, as we heard to change the system to, sh- to change the approach I don't know when I, I thought when we speak about this in Slovenia for example we are very good in uh, uh, firefighters organizations to organize I, I, at their place where people come together to to make these tests or other things to go to schools to go to to people where people come together and other things and I think for sure it 's always the question of money but uh, in case of uh, in case of diabetes, I will not start uh, first with additional money, but the changes uh, how we manage this problem today. And I think that we can do with uh, 175 billion a lot uh, and uh, perhaps uh, that's, that I'm not a specialist in this, uh, and, uh, but that's my uh, uh, answer on your question. And I, 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 I usually, uh, I complain about this, that uh, always uh, reforms means uh,
6: additional money.
0: Okay, Marcia?
6: First of all, let me highlight that um, out of the 176 billion, mm. pharmaceutical is counting around 10%. Okay. So the question is a very good one. And uh, I would like also to suggest, to think how to manage this 176 billion better let me tell you, at the present time, there is a segregation of budget. So the pharmaceutical budget is separated by, from the territory budget. And uh, our system uh, sometimes is interesting in some behaviors because uh, we don't have the money to make available some innovation that can really prevent complication. But we have money for dialysis. We have money for all the complication when it's happening. So having a different management of of the expenditure and enable the possibility to, early on, to invest in order to prevent, can save money and uh, to reallocate in a way that is more uh, strategic. So that's, for example, one example that we can consider. And FB in the past has been highlighted uh, uh, with a uh, with study that uh, diabetes was essentially, across Europe, managed with the segregation, with this silos budget approach, that for a chronic condition, and I would like to hear also <laughs> the expert, uh, uh, doesn't seem to be the best solution for uh, ensuring uh, uh, a long-term effective management,
4: for example. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure we're going to get any additional money, so we need to work with, yeah, work with what you've got. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think this is where we've talked about today that what we need to do is identify the person with diabetes so there's a proactive uh, screening of people and then trying to get them to target really early on. So there's so much good evidence showing if you get your blood pressure target, your lipid target, your uh, glucose targets from the beginning, we get what's called the legacy effect for all of them. So doing something now within the first five years, they get benefits 44 years down the line. And there's now data showing up to 44 years down the line. What we're not doing is we're diagnosing and waiting too long to get people onto target. We're waiting anything from one to seven years, despite patients' uh, risk factors being high, that we're not controlling them, we're not putting all the therapies that we have in our armament and uh, the problem then escalates because they will get the second condition yeah. then the third condition and then it becomes into a spiral, it's very difficult to manage once they've got to what we call multi but we can prevent that multi just by going very early with all the therapies that we have now. So we
2: should change from sickness management to health the management? management yeah. mm-hmm.
0: You'd like to go ahead as well? Yeah, please go ahead. Again.
2: Well,
5: you know, they, there is a JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, publication, and they investigated whether, you know, CGM, that was mentioned by Eric as life changing, and I perfectly agree with this, uh, being considered expensive is perhaps uh, cost effective. And it was actually money saving in the first year because the admission rate, acute admission rate, and emergency department. Visits went down. So Kaiser Permanente, which was the insurance system that published this data, said, "No, no, no." Interestingly enough, the so-called expensive CGM is actually saving our money within the same year. So, if if you if you look at this question, I think in Europe the trouble is that the budgets for primary care and hospital care are divided. This is the most difficult budget, and most money goes to hospital care. You know, so couldn't agree more than in a chronic non non contagious disease management this should be one budget and basically should we say look the longer you can stay on primary care without complications the happier we are and this is clearly money saving it's it's no question about it do we need an initial investment to do so i think yes why because we can't say to a person that needs you know dialysis or you know pct you can't get it because we are putting money on primary care. You can't say this, right? So I believe that perhaps an initial investment not only into medication, into, into electronic medical records that are unified across the system. So that a person has a follow-up, you know, from the very beginning within the same system, and basically, you know, a, a longitudinal development of his or her disorders are clearly displayed to the primary care physician. And of course, early intervention with at the moment expensive medicines. No other way. So this is an investment. But then if you're able to show to the society that perhaps within five years, as suggested, then the chronic complications start to go down. It's not only eye and heart and what we said dementia and the brain, it's also amputations. You know, it's it's saving of, of productivity within a country. So there are very seriously good reasons. To do so. So I do believe that an initial investment is necessary. And I also believe, you know, we are discussing austerity, but you know, to people outside the European Union, European Union seems to be terribly rich.
0: That's true. I
5: do not believe that we have a very serious money issue, particularly not when we are investing in something that will bring back billions of, of, of euros, quite obviously but not only billions of euros. It's the quality of life of these people, if the change of philosophy, how they live, because this, you know, if you preserve a person in good health, this is changing his or her philosophy, obviously, and also of this family, and perhaps also of the micro-society around, and if these people become more vocal, which is one of the IDF goals, they are more hurt, perhaps they can help change us, the philosophy and the society, and this is what what we really want, so, there is an initial investment, I'm afraid, that is necessary, but that will pay off considerably within a very, very visible future.
0: Okay. Whilst well, I change philosophy and the way in which money is spent. Okay. I'm going to quickly run through a few questions. I think we have about 10 minutes left. Um, so. Ann Met asks, uh, well, they're wondering if measuring blood sugar levels is part of an annual check at the GP, as undiagnosed diabetes could give many complications. The undiagnosed cases could perhaps be avoided. Um, Professor Carmish has perhaps a question for you. I
4: think so. this is about screening for diabetes. Hmm. So uh, screening for diabetes currently is not systematic in most countries. The UK has an NHS Health Checks programme where we uh, anyone um, from age of 40 to 74 gets uh, five yearly checkups if they haven't got diabetes, heart disease, etc. But um, and that's showing that uh, we are picking up lots of people and they're going to a prevention programme. It's preventing diabetes, so certainly it seems to be working in in the English healthcare system. Um, all other places very reactive, so patients get symptoms like Eric did, or they get a heart attack and they screen for it. So it's not proactively done in many other countries, and I think I I agree. Um, uh, There are simple ways of doing it. There are risk scores that you go online, just asking simple questions about your age, your family history. If you're at high risk of that, then you go and have a check. If you're low risk, then you don't need to go immediately. You can wait three to five years.
0: Okay, but are there any are there any sort of signs or indications that somebody might need to look out for?
4: Oh, it's the usual. You know, you're, you're you're passing urine more often. You're thirsty. You're tired. All of those are classic conditions.
0: Okay, and and they shouldn't feel bad to be wasting a doctor's time. If they think that they might have a problem, they should go. Okay, Um, Costa says, CGMs for type 2 patients will be a great help and eventually will reduce treatment costs, but the healthcare systems in Europe, the majority of them do not reimburse the expense. This is where the focus must be put. Eric, perhaps, I don't know if you want to take this, but this is something you were talking about as well, but not being reimbursed.
2: That's right. Um, I used not to get it reimbursed because uh, I didn't have enough weight. So I had to gain 70 kilos first before I could use it.
0: <laughs> Gosh.
2: No, but it changed. Uh, I paid them for myself for a few years because it really helped me. And I wanted to take action on my own life. I wanted to manage my diabetes. And fortunately, it's reimbursed now in the Netherlands. So it really gives me enough, um, uh, 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 enough uh, possibilities to manage my blood sugars.
0: Okay, great. Um, I couldn't
2: do it without it anymore.
0: No, of course. Um, Issa two says, at-risk individuals need education, as what we're discussing, access to ongoing support an adequate environment to engage in health-enhancing behaviours. Healthcare protections and systems can contribute by introducing healthcare information technologies to screen for unhealthy behaviors or deliver interventions. I think that pretty much summed up what we we're all talking about. Um, would anyone like to comment on that or we just nod and go on to the next one? Um, well, they also asked, the same person has also said, since hyperglycemia is a strong risk factor for diabetes and many adults with pre-diabetes will likely develop diabetes unless lifestyle changes are made, could hyperglycemia be clinically targeted for preventative measures? Um, Professor Tade, perhaps for you?
5: All in. So whoever this person is, please help us. I think this is the right focus. Yes, glucose is dangerous, so it should be addressed early on, and pre-diabetes is a very good target to be addressed, and particularly, of course, in relation to obesity, which is a terrible trouble that we didn't even start to discuss seriously. So uh, thank you very much for this question, and whoever you are, please help us to do so.
4: And the data for it are, are incredible. You can reduce your risk of developing diabetes from what we call pre-diabetes or intermediate hyperglycemia by 50% yeah. just by going to a lifestyle intervention program.
0: Okay, and are there apps that also support these programs as well? There are,
5: yes. They are apps, but the attrition rate with these apps is terribly high. So I don't believe we found an app that's, you know, that has a long-standing effect perhaps technology is not good enough, perhaps, I don't know. So there are some reasons that we, at least I don't know, or an app that has a long-term success. The attrition rate is extremely fast within weeks. So uh, I would say a combination, perhaps, of this online support and peer support, because people are people, and we like to discuss with other people, and we tend to believe them what they say, so uh, <laughs> perhaps a combination of the two.
0: And Eric, you, don't use, you were saying you don't use apps, really, do you?
2: No, the only app I use is to um, read my uh, sensor. Uh, but I tried many different lifestyle interventions, uh, diets, uh, exercise, and alternative therapy, and I find, found a combination that works for me. And it's a special low-carb diet uh, and some exercise. Uh, uh, that, that's help, what's help, helping for me. And sometimes I look in an app for some uh, data about uh, nutrition effects, but usually I just read the packages and I know if I want to take it or not, if it fits in my schedule.
0: Okay, MEP Bogovic, any insights on, um, you know, any apps that have you used any apps or
3: no, 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 just uh, measuring and. Apps, okay. I, <laughs> I I follow how many uh, how my activities through the days. That's yeah. the, the app which I I use in 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 this context.
0: Okay, perfect. Well, we have um, a few minutes, so I will allow all of you just to give some final thoughts, um, any sort of advice for for anyone that's watching. So, Eric, start with you first.
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think we are moving in the right direction. I have seen a lot of changes in the past 25 years. Uh, changes I am uh, very happy about. And especially what we are doing here, um, making, uh, creating awareness of prevention, and especially preventing uh, the the re, uh, the effects of the diabetes. I think that's very important.
0: Okay. Um, good on the lines, Professor Comlish. Um
4: Well, we've got enough evidence to tell us what we should be doing. We've had this evidence for twenty year, five years, years or so, but for various reasons it's not happening so I think we need to restart thinking how do we get this evidence into practice
0: but a question Uh, can anything actually happen given that you know we've seen because of the pandemic yes can can change come or do we have to get past the effects of the pandemic first
4: I I, I think first of all interesting about the pandemic we've had two years of people not seeing their doctor or their nurse We may have more people die of the indirect causes of the pandemic than the direct when they got the infection because they haven't had their risk factors managed. So I think what we need to start thinking about is who's the highest risk people, bringing them in, getting their targets um, so that we can prevent the longer term complications. In the medium term, short to medium term, we need to think about new models of care to see how can we manage this population because at, at the moment it's unmanageable. And we haven't got enough doctors. We haven't got enough consultants. Um, so we need to, to think about different models of care that we've
0: discussed. Definitely, Emmy Bogovic.
4: In few sentences, speak a lot
3: about this disease. That we know uh, how it, how it, what it is. Uh, diabetes. Uh, then uh, to know where you are risky. Is this in family, obesity, other things? Then uh, to ensure. Uh, early enough uh, diagnose, and then I think it depends a lot on us also to
5: manage your lifestyle.
0: Of course. Um, yeah, Professor, please go ahead.
5: Yeah, I think from a physician standpoint, it's really important people have access, to, as we discussed, to technologies and uh, disease-modifying medications early on so that we identify them early and treat them before they get any complication. Saying so, I do believe that it should be on the primary care level and that the level model, that the care model should unify primary and other levels in chronic non-communicable diseases with a possibility of a unified electronic medical record that would enable us long-term follow-up of each person and, of course, effective management and prevention of this complication. So remodeling the care, introducing electronic medical records that are plus-minus unified. We didn't discuss European registries, but this is super important. This is what the member states could decide on and do mm. so that we have an overview of what's happening in Europe directly from unified electronic medical records on the primary care level. And then, of course, you know, finally adding artificial intelligence as another partner in the systems to enable people to communicate more easily in between themselves for peer support as well as with the healthcare professionals.
0: As you said, my name is
6: um, Analogy from uh, the uh, document of IDF, uh, uh, at the present time we are accepting three airplane crashes per day for the lack of maintenance. That's obviously a, a dramatic call uh, to act. On the other side. Uh, the last 10-15 years has been, uh, never been so promising for both understanding as well as uh, innovative treat- treatment that are not any longer glucose-lowering, but also cardio-renal protection, weight reduction dramatically, so there is a lot of uh, opportunity in front of us. Obviously, it seems that uh, there is uh, some uh, immediate change and urgency to act for uh, making sure that this potential opportunity will be fully capitalized.
0: Okay, thank you all so much. Um, it's been a really great discussion. I hope everyone watching has enjoyed it too. To everyone watching online, thank you for being with us. Um, this has been an IDF Europe launch event in association with Lily Diabetics and you're active as media partner. Take care and bye-bye.